at the start of the week and plenty to hear from the day's radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. As a student, the first thing that you think about is the fact that he had an enormous smile on his face, very, very positive kid. He's a very positive adult. He's kind of evolved into that same sort of positive attitude. No matter how many Christian Dior outfits he has on, he's still essentially the same kid. Loved acting from day one. And what do you think of Barry? I think he's absolutely amazing. The way he has come from the north and I see to a Hollywood famous celebrity. That he's an inspiration to everyone in the school and an inspiration to everyone around the north and I see. And Martin, Colin, Brendan, Kerry, the cast, the crew, the producers, um, Fox Searchlight, Ireland, Brando. <laughs> And we'll start with the morning after a wonderful night at the BAFTAs for Irish film. Wins for Barry Keoghan and Kerry Condon, amongst others. And Claire spoke to Irish Times film critic Donald Clark. Four BAFTAs last night for the Banshees of Inishir and Best Original Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress and Best British Film, even though director Martin McDonough poked fun at how the Irish members of the cast and crew would react to the title of that award. Now, there was Irish involvement all through the ceremony. Three Irish actors up for Best Leading Actor. That did go to the Elvis star Austin Butler, though. So as we head towards the Oscars, what can we read from what was won and what was not at the BAFTAs? Donald Clark, chief film critic with the Irish Times, is on the line. So, Donald, what is your take on that question? What do you think is likely to happen now at the Screen Actors Guild Awards and the Oscars, given what we saw last night? Well, I suppose the disappointment there last night was probably greatest for Colin Farrell. I think going into last night's ceremony, um, he was probably seen as the most likely of the four nominated actors from Bounty's Vinisherin to win. And there was a feeling, I know you've quite correctly mentioned, the degree of controversy that surrounds the notion of um, Bounty's Vinisherin's a British film, though it is produced by a British um, film company. So is you know the same thing happened with um, Brooklyn a few years back. And it's actually reasonable enough to consider it as both. Um, but as a result of that, whatever we may think about it, it was sort of seen as a bit of a home match um, last night for Colin Farrell. So that was disappointing. Um, that is not to say he is ruled out, but you're correct to point to the Screen Actors Guild on Saturday. The, the acting branch of the Oscars is the biggest branch. That will point to a significant number, of what a significant number of the voters will be doing when they come to vote for the Oscars. So you have to feel he kind of needs that to be get back into prime position. Um, there were always three actors challenging for that, I think. I mean, Paul Mescal was lucky, to, was, was delighted to get in, as was Bill Nye. But it always looked as if, the, you know, the flashy performance by Brendan Fraser in The Whale, a flashy performance um, by Austin Butler in Elvis and our own Colin Farrell were the three ones likely to win and they're probably still the only three that could win at the Oscars I think. But now it would seem that Austin Butler is certainly out in front wouldn't it? I would think so yes I mean he it, it matters what they think of the film you know this is an issue. On that topic I think probably the best review of those the three films involved is still The Banshees of Inisherin. Um Elvis was popular but also but a bit divisive. The whale was really divisive. <laughs> so it, um, it ha- was hammered by a lot of people. So that probably hurts Brendan Fraser to a degree. You, you, you thought the whale was awful, didn't you? 
could stand it. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's one of those festival <laughs> openings where uh, sentimental and the fact that it play that, that it comes across like a play, which it was, is not necessarily a bad thing. But in this case, it comes across like a clunky play from the 1950s. But it was a strange thing, and it, the Venice premiere is that the end of the uh, film. I kind of looked around, was astonished to see people leaping to their feet and screaming. But that's the nature of that's the nature <laughs> of criticism that these things are divisive. And here's Austin Butler accepting the award for best. Actor. I want to thank my incredible hair and makeup artists who were by my side every day and they allowed me to age over the course of 19 to 42 years old. And of course, I want to thank Mr. Baz Luhrmann. This film would not have been possible without you. Your vision, your dedication, your commitment every step of the way. I love you dearly. I want to thank my family. You are my everything. And lastly, I want to thank the Presley family. Um, I cannot thank you guys enough for your love and for sharing with me who Elvis truly was. I hope I've made you proud. This means the world to me. Thank you all so much. God bless you. I know he was criticised previously for still having the Memphis accent. There's still a bit of it there. You didn't like him as Elvis either. You said that the indelible memory of the real thing never allows his thinly drawn character to breathe. Well, I did not think he, he grappled with an, uh, a challenge that would, beyond, would be beyond almost any actor. I'll put it that way. I think what I was saying there was less that I thought he was bad than I thought that the task that was set him was more or less impossible. I mean, you have the notion of Elvis in your head while you're watching the film throughout. And though he's a very talented actor and very charismatic, I mean, he can never quite live up to that level um, of stardom, um, that level of charisma and the cultural influence that um, Elvis had upon us. Um, I, but you're absolutely right to point out this sort of mini controversy that's surrounding the fact that, um, that Austin Butler, who is from Anaheim, a suburban part of Southern California, still sounds wandering <laughs> around the place in private talking like he's, he grew up in, in Tennessee. It's most peculiar. It's not for me to criticize him. If that's how he wishes to talk and that's how he's talking, that's absolutely fine. Listen, the man owes Tennessee an awful lot and he might <laughs> owe them even more after the, the Oscars uh, ceremony. Uh, Barry Keoghan and Kerry Condon then, just coming back to the Banshees for a moment, they both did take the spoils, Donald, Best Supporting Actor and Actress Awards. We'll have a quick listen now to Barry's acceptance speech. All right, I've got a list here I've got to thank. Um, Martin, thank you. Um, I'm going to fly through this because I'm quite nervous. Um, Martin, Colin, Brendan, Kerry, the cast, the crew, the producers... Um, Fox Searchlight, Ireland, Brando. Just <laughs> for my son as well, Brando, for my mother, um, and also for the kids that are dreaming to, to be something from, from the area that I came from. This is for you. Mm-hmm. I know it's not always the case, but something like that, a win like that, it opens so many doors. I mean, the doors are already open for Barry and probably for Kerry as well. What do you think an Oscar is likely, a, a BAFTA rather, at this stage is likely to do for both of those actors? Well, I think in both their cases, it pushed them up a level, a notch on, on the ladder. I mean, Kerry was more established, it should be pointed out to this stage. You know, she'd been in a great, a significant amount of television, um, done a few prominent films. She's been in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is worth pointing out. People often forget this, that Kerry Condon films have made, like, sort of $2 billion or something because she was um, the voice of the artificial intelligence that served Iron Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, and Barry's just been incredibly busy um, over the last few years. I was interested talking to um, 
Colin and um, Brendan Gleeson at Venice. I mean, they were very interesting about him, and they, you know, made the point that in a way that they weren't, that he was sort of focused on film and television immediately out of the trap, and he's, you know, he's been offered the roles, and he's done brilliantly with the roles. As far as last night's ceremony went, I think it's interesting in that they were probably, I mean, they were certainly kind of like second favourites, and they were sort of challenging for um, those prizes, but there's, they were not quite favourites going into it, and certainly I think everyone has expected uh, Kehi Kwan from Everything Everywhere All at Once, who you may remember as the juvenile uh, actor in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom uh, to win Best Supporting Actor. And I think the fact that they won earlier on gave um, the Banshees team the notion that they were going to do a massive sweep. Um, and that didn't happen, you know, largely because um, they were able to side in certain key awards by Edward Berger's All Quiet in the Western Front, mm-hmm. uh, an adaptation of that famous uh, anti-war novel. So I think they must have been a bit disappointed by the end, because with those two winning earlier early on, they probably felt they were going to win in all the prizes they were challenging for, and they didn't quite manage that. Were you surprised at the success last night of All Quiet on the Western Front? I was, and I probably shouldn't have been, um, because it was the most nominated film, um, we haven't mentioned on Colin Kewen yet, which, um, uh, you know, it's just had an incredible run um, since its premiere at Berlin almost exactly a year ago. And it was up against All Quiet in the Western Front in uh, Best Film, not in the English language, which was always a bit of a challenge because Western Front was the most nominated film of the evening. And as it transpired, ended up winning the most nominations and winning Best Film. I mean, it is a peculiar one, yeah. And to this point, people have been underestimating it, despite the fact that it got nine nominations with the Oscars, and I think you have to now consider it um, a real challenger for best film with the Oscars. I mean, I was kind of doing kind of some kind of real nerdy stuff about about this last night, thinking about it. And you put it this way: um, if you're looking at a film that wasn't uh, that didn't go on to at least be second favorite, mm-hmm. put it that way, for the Oscars, the best picture of the Oscars after winning the BAFTAs, I think you have to go way back to The Queen in 2006. Yeah, after that, after, after that, but there's always momentum that comes behind that. Um, so I think it could be, <laughs> it could be the coda of um, of this year. Coda being um, the small film from Apple, which uh, was nowhere in people's consideration a few months before the Oscars, and ended up winning Best Picture. I think it could do that. Well, here's hoping. Donald Clark from today with Claire Byrne. Then later, Una Kelly was at Barry Keoghan's old school O'Connell's in North Richmond Street for the news at one and met Barry's former teacher, Connor Flood. As a student, the first thing that you think about is the fact that he had an enormous smile on his face, a very, very positive kid. Um, he's a very positive adult. He's kind of evolved into that same sort of positive attitude. No matter how many Christian Dior, uh, Dior outfits he has on, he's still essentially the same kid. Loved acting from day one. We had um, Christmas concerts that he was a constant part of. And, you know, he just enjoyed that and he kind of shone when he was on stage as well. When you were teaching him, could you have predicted this for him at all? No. I mean, you, can, you can't because there's lots of kids that you teach that have that same energy and the same positivity. But not all of them would have that sort of direction. And from day one, Barry would have been had that sort of focus on what it was that he wanted to do. At the BAFTAs last night, he dedicated his award to people like himself from here for children from this area and their dreams. What did you think of that? That was a beautiful thing to do, I thought, because it was, it's just a little inspiration. I mean, when you see somebody that you know is from the area, that you know still visits the area, whose brother, Eric, 
went to the school and is still part of the area. The whole family are part of the fabric of this area, as are most of our kids. Yeah, I'm Dara Flynn Kenny. And what do you think of Barry? I think it's a real inspiration from people from this area because particularly in working class areas like this, there's a stigmatism. What did you think when Barry was on the BAFTA stage and dedicated that award to teenagers like yourself? Ah, yeah, it was class because uh, it should inspire anybody because he's just normally young from around the area and just to be able to say, yeah, he came from the same place as me, done the same things as me growing up and he is where he is. It's Even if it's acting or football or whatever, it's gives you that bit of drive to push on and say, no, we actually, he done it so it's achievable. My name's Kelvin Williams. And what do you think about Barry? I think it's just great. Like, it does a lot for the people around the area. You know, seeing someone, like, come from the same place as we come from, like, people just kind of look at, like, areas like this and not really give them much thought, like, and he, like, obviously like, went out from here and done what he's doing and, like, still doing it now. Like, it gives us a kind of, like, bit of pride and it gives us, like, that bit, like, maybe we can be exactly like him or even better. My name is James Johnston. Has it changed how you would think about your future at all or about the things that you could achieve? Maybe I can achieve by maybe following his footsteps or I go for my dreams. And when he dedicated that award last night to teenagers like yourself, what did that feel like to you? I feel like I can get ahead to anywhere I want to go. Like I can be successful and I can follow my dreams. My name is Tygo Driscoll. And what do you think of Barry? I think he's absolutely amazing. The way he has come from the north and I see to a Hollywood famous celebrity. That he's an inspiration to everyone in the school and an inspiration to everyone around the north and I see that he's come from such a hard, tough background and made really something of himself. And it just goes to show anyone from any area, it doesn't matter what colour, race, anything you are, you can do what you want if, re- if you really believe in it. Well, that's Tig finishing Una Kelly's report. Then Brian also caught up with Ross White, celebrating a great night at the BAFTAs for his film, An Irish Goodbye. Well, the Northern Irish film, An Irish Goodbye, also had a great night at the BAFTAs, winning Best British Short. Directed and written by Ross White and Tom Berkeley. An Irish Goodbye tells the story of two estranged brothers who came together after their mother's death. We've been speaking to Ross White, director and author of An Irish Goodbye. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable honour. You know, our feet still haven't touched the ground. We're just also over the moon. We're here to just celebrate this wee film last night, whatever happened. Um, we're having the best time regardless. And then it was actually quite late in the ceremony they announced the category, so we, <laughs> we thought we'd blinked and missed it. But then the, the name came out and we just we just thought we're you know absolutely over the moon so we're just celebrating it we're just celebrating it right now it's described as a black comedy set on a farm in northern ireland you shot in location isn't that right was it in Derry, temple patrick and in saintfield so it's very much rooted if you like in northern ireland it's a northern ireland movie yeah it is exactly yeah so you know i'm, I'm from belfast myself and our cast are all sort of belfast and you're all northern irish based but it was really nice you know we had a sort of this kind of all ireland crew actually we had a lot of crew come up from Dublin, from the west of Ireland, you know, so, yeah, it's, it's a sort of all-Ireland tale. So you're very much part of this just extraordinary success that, that Irish filmmaking is enjoying at the moment. 
Oh my goodness, yeah. I mean, we're a very small part of it, let's put it that way. You know, we are just very chuffed to, you know, to think of the guys from on Colleen Kuhn, The Quiet Girl, who, you know, Colm and Cleone have made a beautiful, beautiful film. Um, the Banshees team, it was so great to see Barry picking up an award last night. Lovely Kerry as well. So, look, we are absolutely thrilled to be rubbing shoulders with these folks. Martin McDonough is a is a personal hero of mine and my collaborator Tom. So to be stood on the stage with him last night after for a photo when he had his two baftas in his hands, it was a pinch me moment. I suppose for a filmmaker, it's a great vindication, if you like, of your vision, uh, of your artistic ambition. You know, to be rewarded like this by, by your peers. But I presume it also means awards mean that more people get to see the films. That's exactly it. That's the main thing. You know, it's it's, it's almost strange to sort of make art a competition in a way, but. If it does mean that the more eyeballs get on this short film, then it's it's sort of worth it for us because when you set out to make a film, especially a short film, you just never know how far the reach is going to be really or how you're going to get it out to folks. So we're really chuffed that this will just sort of extend the life of it and give it a bigger platform to get in front of people. Yeah, you also, of course, have the, the Oscar nomination as well. You tweeted at the time that that was an actual dream come true and the BAFTA win maybe gives you that bit of momentum as uh, as we head into the, the Oscars next month. Uh, we'll wait and see. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, look, we're, we're just, yeah, as I say, we're just so chuffed to be a part of all this. We're just so over the moon to be to be a part of it, you know, and, and the Oscars is, a, is, a, is completely wild as well. You know, these are two of the highest accolades for filmmakers. So, Maybe, maybe we've peaked too soon. I didn't know this is our Ooh. second film. But uh, we're, yeah, we're just trying to soak it all up. They, they do say, of course, when it comes to the Oscars and the BAFTAs as well, I imagine the campaign is very important, isn't it? That the, those who are, who are voting actually get to see the film. Are, are people out in Hollywood getting to see the movie? Yeah, well, this is it. You're right. No, in, in America, it's a big thing, especially for the Oscars. It's not so much for the BAFTAs, which is, which is quite nice in a way. But yeah, the, the Americans do love their campaign. And so... Yeah, we're just trying to push the film out now in front of people and trying to get people to watch it. But I think the good thing with our category is in the short film, there's less of a financial power behind it all and there's less of a sort of real competitiveness. I think it's really down to people will watch the five films and they'll just pick their favourite. And as long as they're watching ours, we're very happy to be in the company we are. Ross White from the News at One with Brian Dobson. And just after 11 on Today with Claire Byrne, a speech by US President Joe Biden during a trip to Kyiv in Ukraine. Now, in the past few minutes, the United States President Joe Biden has been speaking in Kyiv during his surprise visit. Let's hear some of what he had to say. Putin thought Ukraine was weak and the West was divided. As you know, Mr. President, I said to you in the beginning, he's counting on us not sticking together. He was counting on the inability to keep NATO united. He was counting on us not to be able to bring in others on the side of Ukraine. He thought he could outlast us. I don't think he's thinking that right now. You and all Ukrainians, Mr. President, remind the world every single day what the meaning of the word courage is. All sectors of your economy, all walks of life. It's astounding. Astounding. Remind us that freedom is priceless. It's worth fighting for for as long as it takes. And that's how long we're going to be with you, Mr. President, for as long as it takes. From today with Claire Byrne.
And on the live line, callers sharing their stories about the mother and baby homes. Um, the mother and baby institutions payment scheme, um, the government say, is an important measure in the government's action plan for survivors and former residents of mother and baby and county home institutions. Except there is a but. It's not for all survivors and former residents of mother and baby and county home uh, institutions. If you were, as a child, you were there for less than six months, you cannot apply. Jean, good afternoon. Hello, Joe. How uh, are you? Good. When did you discover that you would not be eligible? Um, well, when Roderick O'Gorman made the announcement on television there last year um, and just excluded anyone that was there for less than six months. And how long were you? Sorry. How long were you there for, Jean? I was there for um, five months and twenty days. So you're eleven, possibly eight, uh, depending on the month. But you're just a week, a week and a half short. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, what was your reaction when you it. when you heard the the but? Well, I thought um, for me, he just made that whole thing my time there irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Because, like, I mean, everybody, you know, if, you, if I was there another eight or nine days, as you said, it would be okay. But because I'm that, I basically he said I wasn't there long enough to be relevant for the apology. Or the he basically redress. said that if if it's called uh, action plan for survivors and former residents of mother and baby and county home institutions, he basically said you weren't there. The law, yeah, the, the, absolutely, you weren't there. Because how can, yeah. it be, how can it be an action plan for survivors of former residents? You were a resident of a mother and baby home. Yes, I was, yeah. And I was also, after that time, I spent a short period as well in an orphanage, but I can't get any information on that time from the government. It took me a year to get the information from the mother and baby home, but I cannot. I'm finding it very difficult to get the information that's held on me for the time yeah. that I spent in the orphanage. And so that would probably valid mm. me, validate me for the six months, but sure, I can't get the information. There doesn't appear to be any record of it. But, but, you're, ex- but you're excluded. You're specifically excluded. Completely, completely yeah. excluded. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like, because he thinks that because if you were younger than six months old, you would have no memory. And how, like, do, you, how we, do you address that it, thinking? Well, if you're just over six months, do you have great clarity on what happened in your life exactly. at six months on a day? You know, you don't. So it, it, it it's kind of, to me, it's idiotic, the whole thing. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. And Jean, do you know how you, you ended up being born there? How your mother ended up there? Um, yes, like, I mean, just, just, I suppose, it's more down to society, as it, you know, yeah. at that time. Basically, you can't stay at home and have a child out of wedlock. So you have to go away somewhere and sort that out yourself. And um, I'm not too, I don't know 100% what hmm. uh, my biological father's stance was, but, but he wasn't around anyway, yeah, so that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what age was your mother when, when you were born? Uh, she was about 22. Oh, so young. Yeah, yeah. And you have, I know, I know you were adopted at, what, between seven and eight months, and you had, as, as most uh, adoptive adoptees, you had a very, very good life with your parents. Um, and it was a good experience. Did you ever meet your mother, your your, your your birth mother? 
Sorry. I did. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I okay. did. Yeah. Okay. We had a relationship for a while. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's Jean there. Then this incredibly moving testimony from Mary, a victim of rape at the age of thirteen. Mary called Joe with her heartbreaking story. Um, I was thirteen when I was in a mother and baby home, yeah. and um. And along we mm-hmm. along we there for do you? Know? Well, I wasn't there too long. I um. I was there a month before the baby was born and I was there for a month afterwards. And then my father came and took me away. And um, in my opinion, I don't think Mm -hmm. it can be solved, you know, in a one-size-fits-all situation. You know, it's, it's different for every person that was there and for every situation like it's it's so sad it's so controlling and so much injustice that if they could step back and just have compassion first of all and just see and look and talk Mm. to all these people and to this day there's people out there that have never spoken and never will speak yeah. about their experience. And just in relation to this scheme, will you apply for this scheme, Mary? Will you apply for a redress? Well, well I'm, I don't know, Joe. I'm, well, I you mean, were there, like, it's, it's, was, if, if you were a child and if your baby stayed there for less than six months, they're excluded for some reason, but mothers aren't. Right. No, you get you get a you get a, a modest amount, but the other thing you do get is the um is is a is a medical car, but I hope you have one of them. Uh, anyway, um, what? How did you end up there when you were thirteen? Again, it you know it it you were dealing. I suppose it's difficult for anyone now yes. to even understand understand. You know that a thirteen-year-old would have to leave their home and go, and you know stay until you give birth to this baby, mm-hmm. and when you do give birth, walk away. Yeah. And all be you thirteen or be you twenty-three or thirty-three, we were all mothers. Of course, you were. And that was if you if you did, you know, if you didn't come home with a baby. Or not, it doesn't matter. I turned into a mother after that, and I was never the same. And and, the, and ju- just to explain again, people still mightn't fully understand. Um, the, like, what, what? Why do you know how you ended up there? Obviously, you were pregnant, but do you know why you were sent there? You wouldn't have known well, where to I go, was, would you? You were sent there, obviously. I was sent there because that was. That was what had to happen. Did my parents want to send me there? No. They begged and they pleaded and they fought. And they they had no say. And who did they plead and fight with? Well, the the Catholic Church. And, you know, it was the... I think the whole thing... I often think if I murder someone... Would I have been treated better than I than than we were at that time? 
because my parents had to look at me and worry about me. Yeah. I had three brothers and a sister yeah. and everyone was affected by this. And I think they'd have to understand that it is not only a fact that a girl had to leave to where they were from and give birth and maybe come back or maybe not come back. But the psychological effect yeah. it had on everybody. It, it is, I couldn't, I mean, I just can't explain or put it into words how much it changed my family's life and my life. And my poor parents there, I mean, they crying and me going out the door there at 13 and not allowed to come to see me. And I mean, Why even when it? I... Sorry? Why were they not allowed to come see you? I don't have any idea. And Joe asked Mary how she realised she was pregnant at the age of 13. The circumstances are so sad, but I was, of course, I was very ill. And they thought it was my appendix. And when they operated on my appendix, they discovered I was pregnant. Okay. Did they tell you? Well, they told my father. They told my parents. And your parents told you? Yes. And from that day on, you know, I wasn't... You know, school finished, everything finished, friends, the whole lot. Me going out. You know, it's... I don't think... I don't think, you know, it is possible for anyone... You know, that really don't or haven't yeah. been in a situation like this would understand it. And the exclusion of children who were there less than six months, how do you feel about that? Oh, God help us. So how how can you exclude anyone? Yeah. How can you say, you know, one baby was there six months and another baby was there six months and a week? Like, how how can you, you know, like, it's, you know, it's not possible. It just is not possible. Well, they're doing it. They're saying it to Jean, who's on the other line. I was, um, she was there, what, five, she, she reckons she's about eight days short of six yeah. months. And she's, she's stigmatised again. She's excluded by this arbitrary... I know. Six months. I know. And, but and Mary, just again to to try and acquaint acquaint people of what the pressure on your family. I know before with other people that they were told if you do not put your child into a mother and baby home, the law. Now this was a story we we heard from a person living in Kerry. Um, if you do not put your child uh, who's pregnant into a mother baby home, the local hospital will not look after. Did that happen it, in your case? It, that was the situation. Yes. Mother of God. And for that reason, my parents gave in. Yeah. And for that reason, you know, I, you know, I, I, I used to kind of, I, I used to eat very much. I was very lonely down there. I was very, very homesick. Yeah. And my mother used to ring me every evening at seven o'clock. Okay. And I used to try and stop crying. 
No, I didn't cry on the phone. Yeah. But God, I used to kind of let on I was okay to her. Not to upset her. You'd cry beforehand and afterwards. Oh, absolutely. And when I asked, could my mother be with me in the hospital when I was giving birth, they said no. (sighs) And, uh, oh, God help us. And I know, I I know, because we spoke before, um, that that you were a victim of of rape. That's Uh, right. Now, you are, as I said to you at the start, you are eligible. Because you were a mother. It's the children they've excluded for some reason. Yeah. But you are eligible. So so we, 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 we look at that with, you, uh, that with you after the programme if you want to pursue it. Um, Mary, do, do you know where your baby went? I do. I oh, okay, do. Okay. I do. I do. Okay. But your baby now is excluded from that scheme. Yes. Okay. And when you came home... Having had the baby, you're only a child. You're only a child. That's when you right. came home, the baby is gone. I was put up for adoption. Oh, yeah, I know. And how, how, was, was, how was that time for you afterwards? Oh, God. Awful. You know, you think life went on and you went back, I went back to school. And, you know, this was the scenario, like, you know, with all, you know, when the baby will be given up, everything will be fine. And. Things will get back to normal. Yeah. But there is no back to normal. There is nothing that would, you know, like, oh, God, the pain. And I always used to cry on Bernadette, was the baby's name, on her birthday. Yeah. I mean, as I say, like, oh, all these girls became mothers and we all had memories and we all, yeah. you know, be, be they good or bad, we, we get birth to a baby. And, I and mean, I think they'd have to so, so look at this, look at the mother and look at the baby and see, and look at it now if there's one of their children. Yeah. What would they think? You know, what would they like? Mary on the live line with Joe Duffy. And if any of those issues have affected you, you can find some support at rte.ie slash helplines. Now, the concept of selling out, using your celebrity to endorse a product, getting 40 million to swig some coffee. Is it worth it? Well, on today with Claire Byrne, journalist Sean Keyes was taking a look at some of the most famous brand ambassadors. Celebrity brand deals have been around since the days of ancient Rome, when the most popular gladiators were often commissioned to sell olive oil. Get it right and it can be worth billions for your brand, but mixing the turbulent lives of the rich and famous with a product can also embroil a company in a high-profile controversy. Now, last week, the German sportswear giant Adidas issued a profit warning saying it may have to take a hit of 1.2 billion euro if it decides not to sell its remaining stock of products made in collaboration with Kanye West after it cut ties with the rapper over his anti-Semitic comments. We thought we'd take a look at the industry of celebrity endorsements and Sean Key's finance correspondent with The Currency joins me on the line now. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. 
I'm I'm still stuck on this uh, information that I came across this morning about George Clooney earning 40 million from selling Nespresso pods and, and machines. It's clearly a huge business, celebrity endorsements. It is. I think Clooney actually is a good one because his story tells the bigger story of celebrity endorsements. Back in the 90s, when he was he was very famous then, and he wanted to cash in and do some do some ads for Nespresso, but at the time it was frowned upon to be to sell out and to cash in and to do ads. So what he did was he signed up and, and he promoted Nespresso, but only in Europe. So he did that fine for a few years, and then the internet came out and everyone started seeing all of his Nespresso ads anyway. So he had to reconsider. And he said, "Okay, okay, I'm going to go, you know, whole hog here, and I will become the American Nespresso spokesperson too." So, so that was that was that was sorry. Yeah, that's when he made his forty million deal. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's when it works. So clearly, it's gone well for him, and it's gone well for Nespresso. But both the brands and the stars, they have to be very careful here, don't they? Well, they do. Yeah, it it, it cuts both ways. I mean, so you, you talked about Yeezy. I mean, that's about as bad as it gets. Obviously, I was looking back through the history. I suppose it's not quite as bad as I guess as there was the O.J. Simpson um, Hertz one back in the day as well. Um, but yeah, of course, things can go very badly wrong. But they, they can also go, bad, go badly wrong from the, the celebrity side mm-hmm. because they're they're trusting their brand with that of the company that they're endorsing. And, um, you know, that doesn't work out every time either. Not just just this year, we had FTX, which is, I've actually spoken to you about it separately, which is about the, the cryptocurrency exchange that, that went under in disgrace. And FTX had this huge marketing budget and they brought in some of the most respected people in the States. They had Tom Brady, the, their, most, like, their, their all-time greatest sports star. They had Larry David, the comedian, Shaquille O'Neal. Anyway, all of these people are now being sued by FTX's depositors because they alleged that uh, you know that they were hoodwinked into investing in this in this shoddy product by the celebrities. Mm-hmm. Just going back to what you said there about George Clooney, uh, you know, it being seen back a number of years ago as being something that was a little bit off to have an A-lister selling products. Why and how did that change, Sean? It's a good question. I mean, that it's it's a kind of. I think back to the past, to the 90s, and, and and people used to talk about selling out. You know, there was this idea, and before then as well, obviously, and there was this idea, an idea that an artist shouldn't sell out, and it was tawdry and kind of you're, you're, you're compromising your, your true calling of your art. And I just, that's that's not a phrase you hear very often anymore, is it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that's a, that's one part of it. There's a sort of a cultural explanation. But then that, that, that begs a further question of like, well, why did the culture change? I mean, I don't really know. Uh, one, suggest, one possibility is that there's many more celebrities now than there used to be. Uh, celebrities who aren't necessarily famous for being artists, for famous or other things. And maybe that's put pressure on the, the, the A-listers to sort of go down market. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, another change as well, and that comes from the social media influencers, some of whom are extremely successful when it comes to selling products for big companies and they get paid handsomely for doing it too. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, we're, I think we're in sort of a strange world where there's all these, there are these kind of, there's a phenomenon of like celebrities that no one's heard of. There are these people who have, you know, 10, 20 million followers and they're, you know, they're the huge in their world. But because they're not on TV every night in the, in the old fashioned way, you know, only only a minority of people will know about them. But anyway, yeah, that you're able, these people and influencers are able to use the internet. They, they use it in two ways, the best of them, the most successful ones. They can, one, they can use the internet to build their brand and so sort of cut out traditional 
you know, branding of, of a company. But then separate, secondly, they say, okay, if I've got a brand now, then why do I need, why do I need to do any endorsements? Why don't I just sell things myself? You know, if the brand is the, the most valuable aspect of all of this, it's the, the thing that's in shortest supply. And if I have it, then, well, why don't I just sell products too? And that's what you're seeing. Everybody from, you know, Kim Kardashian to Pat Shorts, Jumbo Breakfast Rolls, and people are learning, these, these celebrities are learning that they can directly monetize their brand with products. John Keyes from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show in the morning, it was a goodbye to footballer Stephanie Roach and her dance partner, Irvina Smirveldez. Dancing with the Stars on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Muller Corner. Mullerlicious. And we say a very good morning to our guests this morning, Stephanie Roach and Arvina Smirfeldas. Welcome to you both and thanks for being with us. Thank you for having Thank us, right? Stephanie, how are you feeling today, Monday morning? Yeah, I'm good. Um, I think I really enjoyed the experience on the show. I think I said it last night. It was great getting to know Arvina. He's been brilliant. Um, he got a very raw dancer coming into it. Yeah. Um, I'd never danced before and I think he got me to a level where I could be proud of myself and that's all I can get. I think I you're, you're, you're right. I yeah. think after, after the beginning, I think you were kind of going, Where's, what's going on here? And you got better and better. Why did you agree to this madness in the first <laughs> place? <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. Everyone keeps asking that. But I think for years I've always said, like I always said, I'd love to learn to dance and I'd love to play an instrument. There were things that were always kind of on my bucket list. And when I had the opportunity to do it, I was like, do you know what? I'll give it a go. Obviously, very scary learning something for the very first time on national television. But I think it's important to try yourself into things and and just take risks every now and again. You have to. And take on the challenge. And I enjoyed it, as I said. So that's the most important thing. I've met you a few times during in in the last few years. um, And you always strike me as being very... You you kind of you're a very dignified person. You don't you but you don't kind of you throw it all out there. You just you you're, you're a very pleasant person to meet. And then I I saw you on Dancing with the Stars. Like, Who's this? <laughs> you know, week in week out, you yeah. you, you suddenly they brought in they, they saw a different side to you and the way you just jumped into it, whether it was the outfits or the dancing or the songs that you were. Did you surprise yourself? Yeah, a little bit. I think as the weeks went on, obviously I kind of got into what the show was about. You know, I think starting off the first few weeks, I probably had my football mentality on in terms of look, just get through the dances and yeah. get on to the next week. You know, whereas as the show went on, you kind of learned, right, it is an entertainment show. I have to try and play the character and bring the kind of the attitude to the dance that we're doing. That's so it. I think I learned that as I went on, you know, and I think that's kind of something that I think I grew into as the show kind of went. So as you're talking, you're you're. Your uh, professional dancer is still mentoring you by nodding and cheering and pumping <laughs> the air with his fist going, you've got this. Uh, and it's true because, Zervinas, you, I think you, you had a really important role here with Stephanie and she's nodding now, but it's true because <laughs> you had to take her out of that uh, athlete sporting mentality and say, no, this is showbiz. It's oh. a different beast. No, it was, it's very, very different, especially being an athlete. Like you're always being a perfectionist. Yeah. So you're always like, I need to do this right, that right, this right, that right. But like in entertainment business, in the dancing world, like us professionals, we rarely, rarely get something 100, 100% right. So you need to be able just to go out there, give it your all. And as Stephanie said, it's an entertainment show. The bottom line is you need to break out your shell and you need to entertain the people at home yeah. whilst also still being yourself because you don't want to like play a character, mm-hmm. so to say. You want to be true to who you are as a person. Yeah. So the raw dancer that I actually got from the very start, it was it was a difficult and it was a yeah, long, yeah. long journey. But I'm very proud and can easily say that you have changed as a person and you are much more, I can even say you're 
You're basically a dancer at this point. Yeah, yeah you're you definitely. Dancer. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> there you, you go. Just, listen, as somebody who doesn't dance, I, I, I was really impressed. What, what, what of all the weeks? What was your knockout? Um, if it's weird to say, obviously, because we went last night, but I think last night because the samba was definitely the biggest challenge for us, yeah. and I think like going out on a high was nice. You know, I think if I had went out having made a mess of a dance, it wouldn't have been nice to live with myself. Was, you that, know? A tra- so was that a tracksuit you were wearing last night? It was a, a bodysuit. <laughs> body can I just suit. say it was like a boiler suit? I was so warm. Like so there was a lot of unattractive things happening backstage. Yeah. Venus has seen me <laughs> patting my armpits down because I was getting sweat patches. It was that warm. Like so. So yeah, that was a, a, an interesting experience. Oh, you backstage. didn't have to share that. With <laughs> you didn't have to share it's that out there one. Now. It's out there it's now. Out there now. Mental images are flying. This is the, the beauty side of the, the dancing industry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I thought it was attractive. It was a bodysuit and then a pair of heels which I thought exactly, you know yeah. a, a double whammy for yeah, you as Lorraine yeah. was pointing out that you could do that normally if you were in runners or something it's maybe a different story yeah, but yeah. but you did it um, and what's your takeaway from the whole experience um, just to suppose to show a different side of it that's how we're being from the start I think like, when you're kind of working in TV doing the TV point the tree it's all very serious and kind of you don't really get to show your personality and I think this during this kind of um, run of the show I really tried to get that across and yeah. as I said to you before I think it's important to, to try new things and put yourself out there and I think I tried to do that as best I could so the year of the challenge the post-pandemic year of challenge that's what I see this year as exactly. and doing stuff that you wouldn't normally do and having having fun getting there as exactly, well yeah. and Ryan asked Irvinas how he got involved with the show so this is now my second season on the show yeah, it's only your second season it's only my second season how did yeah. you get uh, involved in the whole thing uh Actually, through John, because I remember that they were casting for new uh, pros last year during the pandemic and everything. So John would have got in contact with, not even with me, through my mum. Your mother? Oh, through my mother, yeah. That's basically how it all started with me. And then I went, uh, got into contact with everyone, interviews, trial runs here and there. And then ultimately it, it was meant to be. So I got into the show last year. And how, how long have you been dancing? Uh, I've been dancing for roughly 12 years. 13, no, 12 years. And what, why did you get into dancing? Oh, uh, <laughs> why did I get into dancing? Story, yeah, the story is great yeah, because I'm it curious, was, I don't know. It entirely was not my choice. Go on. Oh no, at six years old, basically, my mum just dragged me down. <laughs> Here she is again, your yeah. mother, okay. My mother basically decided that I'm going to be a dancer after going to a hair salon and talking to the hairdresser. <laughs> so just like that, I got dragged into Blanche at six years old and it kind of stuck for the rest of my life, so here we are. <laughs> So you weren't necessarily uh, volunteering your services. Oh, no, you I would cons- definitely. conscripted, really. I was conscripted at the start and then I decided that, well, I just learned to love it afterwards and it became a part of me because I fell in love with the dancing through the years as I grew up, so. And everything changed. And everything changed. <laughs> Let's have a little ramble through some of the dancing. Because I always say to, to our guests of a Monday morning from dancing, you, you are free to, to speak as you wish now. <laughs> uh, as to, to, to the common Sunday. <laughs> He's worried now. I'm not going to say I'm not worried. <laughs> you can say whatever you want, Stephanie. You are you have been freed from the shackles of the, 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 the glitter ball. Yeah. Um, no, but uh, the, the first dance was Shane and Karen, the Burns, um, and they did Land of a Thousand Dances um, and they got a seven, a seven and a six. So Shane's a, a nice little uh, dark horse, isn't he? Yeah, I absolutely love Shane Byrne. Like genuinely, yeah. he's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. And his family are just so nice. His wife, Caroline, was so good to me throughout the whole was show. She? And his two daughters were always there with him, his mom as well. Like it was just, he's just such a nice guy. He really is. And yeah. Like He's getting stuck. I always say about Shane, he's a big guy, yeah. like a tank. Well, he's light on his feet. Right? I think he's, he's shown so many people. Yeah. Like I say, he's surprised quite a few people. Like For he really sure. is very good. 
Yeah, so nice surprise, Venus. Oh no, I the exact same. Like Shane, like to me, is one of the most pure people on the show because like every week I'd be messing around with him here and there, and we'd be laughing. But like even last week, I even told him I was like, we were all tearing up at his dedication week. Yeah, everybody like. Like to me, that was one of the most emotional dances actually performed on the show that week. And I literally told him like that time I was like, right, the way that you've just danced, you could literally make it all the way to the wow. end because like you're showing not only that like, okay, yeah, it's here, fun and games to start, but now you're actually showing like, right, you're taking it on board, you're completely going for it, and like even the scores reflect on this. So yeah. I think like he's he's just an amazing person all around. Okay, you guys like him. That's good, wouldn't you? <laughs> now, Suzanne Jackson and Michael danced to one of my all-time favourite songs, um, I've Got You Under My Skin. The version they played was Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga. It was American Smooth. Scored nicely, two eights and a nine. Um, and... It was very elegant, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was beautiful, and I think Suzanne has really grown throughout the, t- the whole competition. Yeah. Like I, I think from the start, I kind of not surprised, but I thought she was really good from the start. Yes. Um. So for us, I think to come up against her in the dance off, I kind of was like, oh god, there's not much chance <laughs> for us here, is there? Like, you know. So when you heard it was it was Suzanne uh, as the other yeah team to face off, did you think? Goodbye. Yeah, well, I or... think it was more so when, when you look at the weeks, like she's she's obviously scored quite high from the judges and I think the judges have been impressed with her each week. So, and I, even last night, I thought her dance was really, really good as mm. well. So, you know, so for us to come up against her, I think, as I said, we went out and gave it our best shot and that's all yeah. we could do even going into the dance off. But yeah, Suzanne has been incredible. Okay, and she, she lives to fight another day. Stephanie Roach and Irvina's Mervaldez from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on The Ray Darcy Show, Barry Cohen's success at the BAFTAs for his work on the Banshees of Inishirin. Ray spoke to filmmaker Mark O'Connor about Barry's first big break. Barry comes from Summerhill in Dublin and I was there as a young boy where he saw an ad in a shop window that was written by writer and director Mark O'Connor, uh, which would lead to Barry getting his first big break and uh, we know what has happened since. And Mark joins me in the studio. How are you doing, Mark? Very good, yeah. How's yeah. things, Ray? Good. The yeah. description of that sign, it yeah. doesn't sound very Hollywood. Uh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> it was, it was, you know, a, a young, uh, up and coming wannabe filmmaker. Yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so I suppose to give a bit of context to the story, I, I had studied in the New York Film Academy after Ballyferma came back to Ireland, was trying to get my first feature film off the ground. That was Between the Canals. And I was trying to, you know, I'd done probably 60 short films wrote and directed. And I, I was kind of in the process of writing it. And I'm, and I was I put that little note up in the shop window. Just it just said handwritten. Lo- yeah, it was handwritten in pencil, sellotape to the window. <laughs> right. This is back around two thousand six, you know. Okay. And uh, and I just said like looking for young lads, you know, from the area. And that was before I met Peter Coonan, and that we started working with the after schools project, you know. Mm. So that was kind of the first, right. first moment. Uh, and you, as a director, you were looking for raw talent. Yeah, yeah, just um. I wasn't involved with acting skills or anything like that. I was looking for people that could be believable on screen, that could portray the characters that were in the scripts, you know, which were, authentically. Which were from Summer Hill. Yeah, you know, the, the and, and, were, and yeah. I'm not from there. So right. I wanted to make something that was authentic. So there was, firstly, there was a lot of research done and and then it was working with the after schools. Myself and Peter must have, you know, been working with them for probably about 18 months. And yeah. most of the kids were from Sheriff Street. But the the note that I put up that was in Summer Hill, so okay. Barry was from a slightly different area, but he knew he knew a lot of the kids, you know. Yeah. So I looked at about a hundred different lads, and, and and Barry was one of those. Yeah. Okay, uh, and he was persistent. Yeah, yeah. He's like it, he was always persistent. I was looking back at emails because you asked me to come in there to talk about him, and um, 
yeah, like I, like he, I've got hundreds of emails, and and I was just, I was what what really struck me was just his drive, and he was always very in, like enthusiastic. He was very likable. Um, he was very curious. You know, back then I was more like he was a kid, so I was just trying to you know mentor him and about acting. You know, explain to him about filmmaking and the process and film. Like I remember one time he sent me an email uh, which said. Oh, Marco, you know, I'm going to watch this film. It's called The Beach, you know. <laughs> and I was like, okay, Barry. And I, and I wrote back to him and said, okay, watch the, watch Saturday Night, Sunday Morning. Watch, watch uh, Andrew Rublev, you know, watch Bicycle Thieves. And I had a list of about 12 films. And I said, and then get back to me, Barry. And then he sent me an email and said, Mark, I'm going to have all of those watched by next week. <laughs> and he would have. And he did. Yeah, he yeah. did. You know, that was the thing about him. Yeah. He was really open to direction. He was great to work with, you know, as I said, really. And likeable. he rang you from that, that, Pencil written sign in the window. Yeah, he rang right. me like I got the phone call and 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 I had other people ringing me about the similar stuff, but but Barry was really persistent and he was ringing me for probably two to three years. I can't remember exactly, but every couple of weeks, you know. And I remember saying to my wife at one stage, "He's, he's <laughs> pestering me. There he is again." But I thought if he's so passionate, yeah. you know, there's got to be something. And then I I'd be meeting up with him for tea, coffee or whatever. And we'd be talking and I, and I just got a sense of like, there's something, you know, there, there's something good, good there, you know. Could you spot it just over coffee before he even did his first scene? I, th- I thought I could, you know, mm. and, and it wasn't like I didn't audition anybody. So it was more just about um, authenticity to the role, uh, curiosity um, and willingness to, to, to be directed and, 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 and you know, just... If if you felt there was something about the person that they were, you know, interesting, yeah. and Barry's got it all really. You know, he, he's he's got a great, interesting look. He's a, go- a good looking young lad. You know, he's um, he's a great actor. He's uh, he's charming. Um, directors like him because he's very likable. When you chat to him, he's like you know enthusiastic, and it, yeah. it just makes directors cast him. You know, I don't know. He's so. And how many movies did you put him in? I put him in three feature films right. before he went into like you know the other like Love, Love Hate and the Factory yeah. Notes right. yeah okay. so it was so like it was Between the Canals yeah Between the Canals with Peter Coonan obviously um, and then King of the Travellers and then I gave him a lead role in, in a film called Stalker right. uh, that was with John Connors so myself and John wrote Stalker together after King of the Travellers and we worked with Barry you know in town in character Barry got really into the role for months I remember there was one day John and Barry walked around town in character like John as Oliver as a homeless man and Barry as Tommy this disaffected young young fella you know who's treated really badly by his uncle and stuff but it's all in there it's in a, it, it was a kind of a really it was a low budget film because we'd just done King of the Travellers which was bigger you know and we wanted to do something different and unique and Barry was just loving it like he was yeah. just he just loved it that's your version of events so we had Barry in here in 2016 okay, okay. and we were asking him about what you've just oh no and, and, and this is what he said to us yeah I started kind of when I was 18 on Between the Canals a group of us from from the area like uh, talking and do workshops with Mark and um, yeah and he, Mark kept me down for King of the Who's Travelers Mark? Mark O'Connor. Right. Um, and he kept me for uh, King of the Travellers then and then from there I got an agent here. And okay. When you say your part, you're from where you're, where are you from? Um, Summerhill. Right. The, the one, yeah. Okay. It was, it, it, I took the number down. It was uh, non-actors I said on the on the page and I took the number down I rang it and I kept ringing it and he was, yeah, I have to get fun. I didn't have a clue on that was. I just kept ringing, kept ringing and then he brought me in and those lads from uh, Sheriff Street there as well who I knew so 
Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty that's pretty similar. It is, yeah. <laughs> the only thing is he was definitely younger cuz he says he was 18 there but he was like he was going around on his moped. Like not sorry, not his moped, his scrambler. Right. So like he was about 13, 14 at the time. Mark O'Connor from the Ray Darcy show. And on today with Claire Byrne, Nolene Blackwell of the Rape Crisis Centre on the rise in reports of spiking. So the Justice Minister Simon Harris has warned of a worrying increase in drink spiking incidents reported to Gardaí. He t- told the Dáil he intended to roll out another public awareness campaign and called on the industry to be clear of their responsibilities on the issue. In 2022, there were 106 incidents reported to Gardaí and that re- compares to 62 the previous year and only 12 reported incidents in 2020. Nolene Blackwell is CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and is on the line. Good morning, Nolene. So this was in response to a question from the Sinn Féin TD, Mark Ward. And on the face of it, the figures are fairly frightening when you consider they've doubled in a year. What's your reaction to that, though? How seriously should we take this? Yeah, the numbers are still very, very small there. So uh, so even, you know, the doubling is from a small base. But I think maybe the figures that are coming through now are the first time that the Gardaí have been able to supply figures at all in relation to spiking, where spiking have been mentioned. And I think maybe there was a very, very low base, a low awareness within the Garda Pulse and their data collection system back in 2020. And now they're, they're bringing it in more when it's raised in in the course of incidents. So I suspect that a spiking, um, and and it's probably worth talking about what exactly that is, it's a lot more prevalent than these figures suggest, but it has been more prevalent as well. So that kind of marked increase uh, may not represent a true picture because spiking, when you think about it, there are very, very few people listening to you, Claire, who won't have come across an incident where somebody asked for a drink and was given a double or where somebody threw um, uh, alcohol into a, a punch uh, in order to make it more uh, more alcoholic or who haven't who haven't laughed about you know who would or would have heard somebody laughing about the fact that somebody was given a double and it made them uh, different to mm-hmm. the way they would have been if they knew what they were drinking. You see, that's really so interesting. around a good while. When we think of spiking, we imagine somebody surreptitiously putting some sort of a powder or a pill into a drink. But it can be as simple as that. Somebody asks yes. for a vodka and Coke and they get a double when they didn't want yes. a double. They wanted a single and they're not able for a double. Exactly. Nolene Blackwell from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.